are entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats are trying to outdo one another by pushing crazier and crazier ideas to the American public. We'll talk about that. Plus, Republicans seem to be turning on Trump when it comes to tariffs at our southern border and Mexico. We'll get into all the latest and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. America's faced huge challenges before. World War II. Put a man on the moon. This environmental catastrophe bearing down on us may be the biggest challenge yet. But how do we beat it? How do we beat it? We do it by what we've always done as Americans. We invest in science, in innovation, and in American workers. That's how we're going to do it. So when we talk about what what are we doing to make sure that housing is is, is being legislated as a human right? What does that mean? What it means is that our access and our ability and our guarantee to having a home comes before someone else's privilege to earn a profit. We've already had five, just this year, five black transgender women killed violently in 2019. It's outrageous. It must, it must, it must end. And the fastest way to end it is end the Trump administration. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Just a little taste here of how the Democrats are crazy. Democrats are pushing ideas there with uh, climate change and access to housing. You had Ocasio-Cortez. You had Elizabeth Warren saying stuff. And these these are unserious ideas, but... They are pushed as though this is the future of this country. And then Joe Biden talking about a, a, a tragedy, the five uh, numerous tragedies, five people being killed, which it's terrible. What does that have to do with Trump? Has nothing to do with Trump. Absolutely nothing to do with Trump. But someone dies somewhere. It's very sad. It's very bad. Maybe you can make some kind of uh, argument about a rise in discrimination and hateful rhetoric. And th- there you go. You have your transition to Trump. These are the these are the most prominent Democrats among the most prominent Democrats in the country right now. And the stuff they talk about is either insane on its own or insane in how it is the fault of Donald Trump. Everything is Trump's fault. That's one of the defining traits of Trump derangement syndrome. Everything that's bad in existence can be blamed on Trump. All you have to do is just find that little transition. I mean, today is the anniversary of D-Day. I'll speak more about that later on in the show, but World War II, Elizabeth Warren says, not as big a challenge as climate change. I mean this, my friends, those of you listening all across the country and listening on podcasts, and how can anyone say that and not feel like a total moron? I think that's fair to ask. How could you say that climate change is a bigger challenge than a global war, a true war, a conflagration that included a holocaust of 6 million Jews, 11 million human beings, 
murdered in the Nazi concentration camps, 60 million people, soldiers and civilians, killed throughout the 45 to 60 million, depending on the estimate that you want to go with. The rise of true fascism, not OMG, Trump tweeted something mean, he's such a fascist. The the rise of, of actual totalitarianism, which then led to another totalitarianism staring at the rest of the world with nuclear weapons, by the way, the Soviet Union. But that's not as big a challenge as climate change. This woman taught at Harvard, people. Okay, <laughs> let's let's really take a step back for a moment. This is an Ivy League law professor, and what she says, she'll be. There'll be. She knows uproarious applause for saying something that is just utterly fatuous, and feckless, and stupid. Democrats are talking about all these things they want to do, none of which they really want to do. And the whole pitch is that they're the adults, that Trump is the baby. Trump is the one who doesn't understand anything. Meanwhile, all the things that they talk about are just that, talk. They're never really going to get the Green New Deal through, at least not the way that they've talked about it up to this point. You can't figure out if they even want to impeach the president. It's a moral duty, but we don't know if we're going to do it. I thought it was a moral duty. Uh, But you see, Democrats don't really understand what moral duty means, I suppose. It means it's a thing that you are to do irrespective of whether it feels good or helps you out or it's a question of morality. And then Ocasio-Cortez jumping in, housing as a human right. What does that mean? Housing as a human right. How much housing? Where? What degree of housing? Who pays for it? And she says that access, a very kind of coded word in Democrat circles, access. Access means you give me what I want. It means you pay for it. That's access. If, if you don't pay for it, if you don't give to me what I want, I don't have access anymore. Well, it's really just a code word for the socialist-style redistribution of wealth, isn't it? In so many cases, in so many different arenas. And access is more important than the right of someone to make a profit. Okay, so then there just won't be people building new homes in areas you know cuz they have families to feed too the builders the construction workers you know ocasio cortez is deeply and shockingly ignorant of how economics works which is funny because she has an economics degree but you know from bu i'm sure that they studied a lot of a lot of marx and then in some ways the most absurd Uh, The most underhanded, Joe Biden, who is just desperate to establish his credibility with the left wing base because he knows he has the establishment right now. He knows that the DNC and the Democrat machinery is already behind him. So he says that the fastest way to end the problem of black transgender women being targeted is to get rid of Trump. I would be fascinated. And if we had a real press corps that wasn't just a bunch, they weren't just a bunch of lapdogs for Democrats either trying to get in power or who are in power, uh, they would ask questions like, what does Trump have to do with five murders of transgender minority women in this country exactly? What, what is that? And, and have there never been murders of transgender minority women in the past? Of course not. And is is every murder of any person terrible or tragic? Yes, of course it is. What is the tie to Trump? 
What what is this? How, how can he say this? Again, how can just like with Elizabeth Warren, how can Joe Biden speak these words and not feel like a moron? Well, I mean, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, I think, is a fraud, but a savvy one. I just don't think Biden's very smart. I never have. I never have. And he certainly doesn't make me think he's any smarter when he unveils his speaking of the Green New Deal. Speaking of Elizabeth Warren telling us that climate change is a bigger, a bigger challenge than World War Two. She's saying it on the on the D-Day anniversary. Oy. Here is what Biden says about climate change. Play two. If we take drastic action right now to address the climate disaster facing the nation and our world, more severe storms and droughts, rising sea levels, warming temperatures, shrinking snow cover and ice sheets, it's already happening. And science tells us that how we act or fail to act in the next 12 years will determine the very livability of our planet. Yet today, President Trump denies the evidence in front of his own eyes, hides climate science produced by his own administration, and actively works to roll back what progress we've already made. You can't be a person of any judgment or wisdom or or historical knowledge. And, and believe what Joe Biden just said. It's not possible. I mean, maybe you can be smart, you can be, you can be quick-witted, but you cannot be a person of good judgment and think that what Joe Biden said is, is intelligent. Drastic action to address the climate disaster. What, what climate disaster? What, what is the disaster? Where is this disaster happening? The rising sea levels where? In Florida? No. California? No. New York? No. Where is this happening? I would I would like to know what the heck Joe Biden thinks he's talking about. Now, I understand that this is for an ad and he's been this has been written for him by other people. But we are seeing now what the other side is offering up as a. In their view, a kind of antidote to Trumpism. They view this as. A necessary corrective for America. And the stuff they are putting out there is utterly nuts. And if journalists were really doing their job, they would ask real questions about all of this. But they don't. They all buy into climate change because it's a, it's a, it's a psychological fashion. It's a way of showing how smart and cool you are. And how much you care, man. And how much you, you, you're part of the team. And you're like this existential purpose where all the good people are with you and it's just idiocy what do they think that i want to drown that i don't want future generations to have food to eat or water to drink or we're all going to be underwater of course but this is how can anyone say this stuff and not feel dumb this is a pretty scary place to be isn't it ah and they think trump is the problem they're all you know trump's over in the uk right now and they're trying to come up with different ways to make it sound like this is a disaster. <gasps> Did you see him and his children? And they're just walking around like they own the place in Buckingham Palace. And, uh, the, the, the hysteria, it, it's exhausting. I can't imagine getting as upset over nothing as libs get upset over everything when it comes to Trump. Everything is a disaster. Everything requires drastic action. Or else the livability of the planet, as Joe Biden said, may be at risk. And I don't just mean the climate change stuff. I mean his tweets, 
the way he talks to reporters, the way he speaks about the mayor of London, you know, Meghan Markle. Who the heck cares about Meghan Markle? And I'm just going to say it. I don't give a rotten crumpet about the British royal family. And I do not understand any Americans who do. You're entitled to it, but I don't get it. Who the heck cares? I mean, it, it is it is really the the anglo uh, the the anglo version of like the kardashians or something at this point it's just i know it holds them together in history and all this whatever uh, they, yeah the kardashians hold us together you know who cares uh, some of you are spitting out whatever you're drinking right now but you know what i'm saying i mean this is ridiculous but instead of just focusing on the substance and covering trump's visit there as a head of state and meeting with other other important officials in the UK, although I think Boris Johnson apparently refused a meeting with her. What's up with that, Boris? Uh, Trump should have known better than to reach out his hand to that guy. He's always seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a loose cannon. But the ideas that we're hearing on this side tell us a lot about what's coming. The ideas that we are, while the president's over there meeting with you know, the Queen of England and the Bilderbergs, the Illuminati, just kidding, he's not doing that. Or is he? While he's over there doing the stuff that he's doing, over here we're hearing all these Democrats run around, and I, I'm i at a point now where I think that we have to be wartime conservatives and just say, I'm not going to pretend that these ideas are normal and rational. They think that, because they think that we're crazy. They think you're crazy because you don't believe that someone's saying that access to housing is a human right. What is that? Does, does that mean that the government can conscript you into building homes for people that don't have jobs and don't have any resources? I mean, where does that access stop and start? That World War II is not as big a challenge as dealing with climate change? This is, this is from the party that wants to be in power, my friends. Remember that going forward. Remember that. And We've got more on the uh, immigration situation. I got, I got a lot for you, team. So uh, stick around. I will be back in just a moment. My empathy and my sympathy is with the families who've had to flee the deadliest countries on the face of the planet, who are met with the greatest cruelty and inhumanity in this country's history. Uh, we have the capacity to be able to take care of those this families. Uh, Beto is also somebody who blathers on like a moron without any real pushback from the media. Since we're talking about how Democrats just say all this stuff and this is this is idiotic. You know, you you can say that you don't think that a wall at the border is going to work as well as Trump says, but, but it will work. It's not idiotic. We already have walls in places. I mean, you look at the things that Trump was running on and they're real tariffs against China. That's a real thing you can do. You can argue whether it's a good idea or not. Stuff the Democrats are talking about is just nuts. Just bonkers. World War II, not as dangerous as, or not as, as challenging as climate change. Universal housing as a human right. Uh, you know, the, the obsession with the Russia stuff and are we going to impeach? Are we not going to impeach? I mean, just impeach him already. Get it over with, you, you cowards. But Beto is saying great that these migrants are being met with the greatest cruelty in our country's history. Look, our country has like all countries that have been around for a few hundred years, engage in some pretty cruel stuff. I don't think I need to remind Beto of some of the darker moments in U.S. history where we have been incredibly cruel to our own people and to other people, you know, to, the Amer to our fellow Americans as well as the people outside of our borders. Uh, 
the greatest cruelty? I mean, just at what point does the exaggeration, you know, where are all the fact checkers? Where's all the, oh my gosh, Trump is lying all the time, people. What, what is this? Oh, that's an opinion. Yeah, you mean the stuff that Trump gives all the time and they fact check him on? By the way, PolitiFact, which is a joke, did a fact check of Obama saying that you can buy any gun, anytime, including online, and said that it was mostly, it was mostly false. No, no, it is pants on fire false. It is as false as false gets. Why, why wouldn't they say that Obama was, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire false? Because he's Obama. It doesn't get more false than that. You can't buy, not anyone can buy any gun anytime online. That's just a lie. Remember, we talked about this in Brazil. But the fact checkers are politicized. The journos are politicized. The newspapers are politicized. And they're owned by the left. This is the province of the left. If it wasn't, people like Beto, when they say that migrants are being met with the greatest cruelty, the greatest cruelty, they spend about 24 hours in detention, get processed, get brought food, get brought uh, blankets and medical care, all courtesy of you, by the way, the taxpayer, and our brave, hardworking Border Patrol. And then they're let in the United States where... They get whatever else they can get. The greatest cruelty in history? I mean, this is where I ask. You know, is Beto an idiot? You have to start asking this question about Democrats. Fraud or idiot? Democrat. Fraud or idiot? Because the stuff they're saying is indefensible. And, you know, where's, where's our media? Where are the firefighters of our democracy? You're supposed to be asking the tough questions. We have a real problem at the southern border. All Beto wants to talk about is... Now... Does anyone even care what Beto says? Fuck, I totally care because you just have this Beto voice that you want to use on the air. And if you don't at least get him to be like somewhat of a factor in the election, you're not going to be able to like talk like Beto. I know. It's like totally a bummer, bro. Makes me so sad. Got more on the immigration thing. Republicans are turning on Trump here. I mean... With friends like the Republican Party, you got to ask, you know, does Trump even need any enemies? So he's got plenty of those. Raheem Kassam will join to talk about the UK because he's got a fancy British accent. So you want to hear from him on that. And then uh, Democrats destroy private citizens for fun and for politics. That's coming up, too. If I'm a terrorist, I want to come to this country to do us harm. I'm not going to buy an airline ticket. There's too many checks, too many database checks to, to before you get a ticket. I'm not going to get a visa because the visa security unit does numerous database checks before you get a visa. If I'm going to be a terrorist enter this country, I want to take advantage of the, of, the, of the border now that's in chaos and come across the border the way 12 or 20 other million people came to this country. This is a national security crisis, and God help us. If the wrong people cross that border because of this chaos and this country is going to go to another 9-11, no one wants to talk about it, but this, this border is vulnerable and it's a real possibility. The border is not secure. We know this. There are huge problems going on at the border. Trump is trying to deal with this. Trump is working now to get Mexico to be a real partner in this process. And that means that he's going to have to use carrots and sticks. He's saying that this is an issue that's important enough that it would be worth the economic pain. It would be worth the difficulties that we would come up against here. Play clip 23. But even beyond the laws, Mexico shouldn't allow millions of people to try and enter our country. And they could stop it very quickly. And I think they will. And if they won't, we're going to put tariffs on. 
And every month, those tariffs go from 5 percent to 10 percent to 15 percent to 20 and then to 25 percent. And what will happen then is all of those companies that have left our country and gone to Mexico are going to be coming back to us. And that's okay. And yet Republicans are now saying that they will try to get a a supermajority to thwart the president on this one. You know, this is this is a classic moment of why the GOP just can't get it done, can't seem to figure out how to get accomplished what they promised all along. So I I just it's such a frustration, you know, Democrats, for the most part, when the when the part when when the president, when Obama was trying to mobilize on something, the Democrats are with him. It's the Republicans who stood in the way. Fine. Republicans have to worry about their own side. They have to worry about getting McCained. Meeting somebody from within their own ranks goes, yeah, I'm going to decide to be the one that just I'm not going to go along. I'm more important than this cause. I'm not going to go along with it. Hmm. Okay. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Trump is saying, look, tell me that Mexico isn't in control here, doesn't have power. That's not going to fly either. Play 22. I think Mexico will step up and do what they should have been done. And I don't want to hear that Mexico is run by the cartels and the drug lords and the coyotes. I don't want to hear about that. A lot of people are saying that. Mexico has something to prove. But I don't want to hear that they're run by the cartels. You understand. You report on it all the time. A lot of people do. That would be a terrible thing. Mexico should step up and stop this onslaught, this invasion into our country. Mexico should be helping us here. Mexico could be a much stronger partner on this than they have been. But we know where the Democrats are on this one. They're not on board. They can't do they, they, everything for Democrats is against solving the border problem. They don't want Trump to get a win, especially going into this election year. They don't want Trump to look competent on negotiation. Imagine if Mexico caved to this tariff if he had a unified GOP support behind him. Oh, you mean that a tariff would get a result that people said it could not get? Oh, what would that mean for a negotiation with, with China? Wouldn't that then, whether you agree with what we're doing with China or not, wouldn't it then become at least a data point, if not a case study, for what could be possible if, in fact, somebody was dedicated enough to a negotiation that, yes, involves a bit of risk and involves a bit of arm twisting? That's what a lot of negotiations do. You know, we we seem to think that, that our president should negotiate always in this position of how do we make the other side happy? We don't want to be too rough. We don't want to be too mean. How do we get the other side to feel good about this? Trump's version of negotiation is, look, this is what I think is a fair deal. If you don't do it, this is what's going to happen. Different approach, but it's the approach of somebody who hasn't been a politician his whole life. It's the approach of somebody who's a businessman, who has had to look at a bottom line, who's had businesses rise and fall, things that work, things that go bankrupt. Dealing in reality, not dealing in this, you know, ephemeral, gobbledygook, messy world of politics where, you know, it is whatever you say it is. Mitch McConnell, certainly. Cocaine Mitch, sorry. Cocaine Mitch. I, pardon me. Got to get his name right. Cocaine Mitch is like, look, Democrats obviously don't want to do anything here either. So it's, at a minimum, Trump taking this action 
And then if Democrats go along against it, if we could just have a unified GOP on this, would show that Democrats are, are, are not just opposed to Trump getting a win. They're opposed to the issue being solved, period. They like what is happening at the border. 100,000 plus a month, folks, every month, like clockwork now. 100,000, 100,000, that's what we're looking at. A million for the year. We have a president who is in a position he's in because he ran on immigration as a hardliner, and now this is what we're dealing with. Play, play 21. Cocaine Mitch has got some words for the Dems. It's way past time the president's request for assistance from our government be met. I mean, we walked out of here after we did this supplemental, and the Democrats insisted on taking out of the supplemental they just passed in the House yesterday anything to address the humanitarian crisis at the border that would be funded by Health and Human Services. So look, they need to take their heads out of the sand and work with us on our side of the border to address the humanitarian crisis that their resistance has contributed to. Mitch is right. Mitch is right. I know people say Mitch is so establishment. On some stuff, he's real strong, though. He's been great on judges. Give Cocaine Mitch a high five on judges. He's been great on judges. He's, he's pretty good on the border lately, too. i got to say, he likes to take the fight to the Democrats, just like Tony Montana would. We'll be right back. Just how nasty, vindictive, and crazy are people in the mainstream press, a lot of journals, journalists out there. How, how vicious are they willing to be? What do they see as their role in society? What do they see as their, uh, their purpose? They would tell you, if asked, I'm sure, journos, the journalists, would tell you that they exist to bring information to the masses, to inform the public, to be guardians of democracy. Oh, and to speak truth to power. That's one of their favorites. It's so self-aggrandizing, isn't it? It sounds so good. Speak truth to power. In reality, most journalists coddle power. They like to be close to it. They like to be around it. They like to touch it, to feel it. They'd much prefer to be in the good graces of the powerful. And that's one of the reasons that there was such outrage when Hillary lost, because there were so many journos who felt like eight years of Hillary was going to be the, the crowning period, the crowning achievement of their careers. And they had worked long and hard to prop up the Clinton reputation, the Clinton name, and they were going to finally get to cash in on it. But you also see that among the journalist class, there is a willingness to be truly nasty, uh, to ruin people, to ruin lives, to take away uh, many nights sleep from private citizens, to humiliate publicly those who have no power but merely serve as an example, merely serve as the, uh, the cautionary tale that libs want to tell. Essentially, if you step out of line, this can happen to you too. If we have to make an example of you publicly, we will. And there was just one such case over, uh, over the last few days where this, uh, this guy, and I, I, don't, I won't name him because I don't have to name him, it doesn't really matter, uh, this guy who allegedly, I, I believe he disputes this, posted a, a, a doctored video of Nancy Pelosi seeming drunk and, you know, talking about things seeming drunk. And it got a lot of attention, a lot of shares and everything else. 
And this is very upsetting to liberals because Nancy Pelosi is at least officially the single most powerful Democrat in America. She's third in line for the presidency and she is um, not necessarily from a, from a brand perspective. Obama is probably the most powerful still, but from a a power power perspective from getting things done within government, Nancy Pelosi is the number one Democrat right now. And so you mess with Pelosi at your peril. That's the message the journos want you to have. When was the last time you saw an oppo piece on Nancy Pelosi, by the way? When was the last time you saw journalists really dig into her background, her family wealth, her, uh, you know, they, they are always, always doing everything they can to run interference for her to prop her up, to make her seem like she is the uh, queen of the Democratic Party right now. And she's supposed to be untouchable. And this guy violated that precept. He violated that hands-off order that the, that the journos have on Pelosi, who they, I think many journalists actually fear her, but a lot more suck up to her. So this guy posts a video of Pelosi seeming drunk. There are other videos of Pelosi where it's just edited and making her look like a stumbling fool. That's because she does stumble a lot and she sounds foolish. But this one, I think, was I, I tried to find it. It's been taken down. Think about how frustrating that is. It's been taken down on all these different sites, taken down off of YouTube, taken down off. I tried to find it, couldn't. And I wanted to see, you know, how heavily edited this was and all this other stuff that they talk about. So that's where the Daily Beast comes in. The Daily Beast, if you don't know, is another one of these websites that exists for reasons that I don't even think they could articulate at the Daily Beast. It is indistinguishable in its editorial approach. The kind of stories are from a hundred other left-wing woke.com style sites, right? All about intersectional social justice, advancing liberal agenda items, hates conservatives. That's the Daily Beast. It's not, not advancing anyone's knowledge of anything. Uh, does a lot of unserious, crappy journalism and... Yet it's still around because it's, well, supported by Barry Diller over at IAC. He's a very powerful media magnate. IAC is a huge company, owns Match.com and Tinder, among other things. So the Daily Beast thought that it would be a worthwhile usage of their journo's time to track down this private individual who, it turns out, based on the story they, uh, they published, is an unemployed African-American forklift operator lives in the New York area and owns a couple of small Facebook pages. And they decided to out him and then felt like they were heroes for outing this guy. They thought that they were doing some favor. And then to justify this on a journalistic level, because really this was just callous, and, and vindictive, but to justify going after a private citizen for making a what is really a parody video of Nancy Pelosi. And remember, the Democrats, they wanted this pulled down there. You know, Anderson Cooper was, oh, he was so huffy and upset because Facebook wouldn't take down these doctored videos of Pelosi as if they're supposed to be the arbiters of what's posted in good taste about politics. Well, liberals do want that, though. They do want Facebook to do that. The journalists are not. First Amendment advocates. They want their own First Amendment. They, they want the freedom to say what they want. They don't want others to have that freedom, though. So what did they do to say that this was somehow a journalistic 
Endeavor outing this person. How did they come upon that? Oh, that's right. They said that this shows that it's not just Russia that can engage in. It's not just Russia who engages in disinformation. So they doxed this guy, right? They doxed him. They outed him, put his stuff out there, and uh, essentially tracked down an internet an internet troll. Um, and, you know, that's what it is. That is what they did here. Why would they do that? Why would they put this guy in a position now where I'm sure he's gotten death threats, his career might be in jeopardy? Oh, and by the way, the Daily Beast called up Facebook and just said, hey, we want to find this guy. And Facebook reportedly turned over information about this guy's account to help the Daily Beast identify him. Don't think for one second that these social media entities won't play favorites and release the information they have in order to trash Republicans, conservatives, or anyone who gets in the way of the left, anyone who gets in the way of the left-wing agenda. Don't for one second think that. Because you know they will. You know that your so-called private information will magically leak to reporters. It's just a matter of time, trust me, until someone's running for office and their you know, Facebook instant messages to their now ex-wife magically find their way, not from the ex-wife, magically find their way out in, you know, the in journal land. The surveillance apparatus of the social media platforms out there is going to be turned for partisan purposes. It's already happening, but this is an instance of it. This guy offended Pelosi. He went after Queen Pelosi. So a, a well-funded, large website hunted him down with the help of Facebook. And now... This guy's life is forever altered, even though he says it's not even his. Uh, Rich Lowry over at the New York Post pointed this out, too. Um, They cited, quote, Instagram posts of his using an abusive term to refer to a woman who allegedly kicked him on the subway, detailed his employment history, talked to his ex-girlfriend, delved into his guilty plea to a domestic, domestic violence charge and an outstanding warrant for his arrest on a probation violation. They did a full-on oppo research deep dive into this guy. He's not a public figure. Why'd they do all that? They want to send a message to everybody else. You think you can just be an anonymous person who makes videos that, that uh, mock Democrats? You think you can spread anti-Pelosi propaganda with impunity just because of the First Amendment? And Oh, no. Oh, no, the big bad Democrat machine will come for you. A private person is no longer safe from the CNN. Look what they did to the the woman who had the, the you know the Russian Facebook event or whatever. They went on her in her house, stood in her front lawn, and confronted her as if she was like a bad person. She didn't do anything wrong. CNN threatened to out somebody that put out some other stuff that they didn't like. That was you know anti left wing. They do this all the time now. These people are a disgrace. I mean, journalists are increasingly vicious. Little partisans, vicious activists. It's like they all work for Media Matters. It's like they all want to be the most woke and destroy the most people to show just how dedicated to the left-wing insanity they really are. Our special relationship is grounded in common history, values, customs, culture, language, and laws. The extraordinary alliance between the American and the British people, it's the greatest alliance the world has ever known. 
It is this deep special relationship and partnership between the United States and the United Kingdom that ensures our safety and security and the safety and security of others around the world too. That is a relationship we should cherish. It is a relationship we should build on. It is a relationship we should be proud of. We love the Brits. We know this in this country. There is, there is a special relationship between America and the and the Anglosphere. It does feel like our, our cousins, so to speak, in these other countries, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, Australia. These are countries where, first of all, any American who goes, from what I understand, feels very immediately welcomed and at home, and culturally it's very similar. Uh, but we have, a, as a country, we have a, a truly a special relationship with the the Anglosphere, uh, because of that, uh, of those linguistic and cultural uh, similarities in the shared history. Particularly noteworthy, I think, right now that you have uh, the president in the UK and you have uh, Theresa May and President Trump saying very, exactly what you would expect, but nonetheless, very strong, uh, very warm words about the relationship between these countries on the anniversary of D-Day. Uh, then there are some very worthwhile remembrances, analyses going around today of just what it would have been like at that time to have been dropped off on a Higgins boat under heavy enemy fire. And in the case of, uh, what is it, uh, Pont du Hac, where there's a particularly difficult fight with elevated German machine guns and machine gun nests, that first scene, I think, captures it very well in Saving Private Ryan, where you have machine gunfire opening up on boats, people getting hit left and right, a long, hard slog after being seasick, which I've always... I I don't know how many of you have ever been seasick before, but it is debilitating. If you think you're a tough guy and you're you're a big, tough man or whatever, or lady, and you, you get seasick and you are humbled, because you're just you're it's it's kind of like your worst hangover ever, except you didn't earn it. There was no fun beforehand. That's kind of what's being seasick, but with much greater nausea. Even just thinking about it right now, even just thinking about the times I've been seasick makes me start to get a little queasy. Uh, I but I can't I can't even fathom being on one of those Higgins boats and going through rough water and and get, you know getting seasick along the way. And then getting being told sprint a couple of hundred yards across a a killing field set up specifically with fields of fire just to to cut down and destroy all all, all possible uh, soldiers everybody and to have run through that and seeing your your brothers in arms getting hit left and right I mean it's it's a truly incredible testament to. American bravery, uh, courage under fire. And there's a reason why D-Day, an invasion of Normandy, has such a significance in our history. It's also very significant to note that, you know, the Brits, the Canadians, they're right there with us. The Canadians, I believe, actually took one of the very hardest beaches largely on their own. At some, I, I don't want to say if it was Juno or Gold or because the World War II historians in this audience blow my, blow my World War II skill set out of the water. If you want to talk about 16th century Renaissance wars between the Islamic states and the Christian states of Europe, then we can maybe throw down. But those of you, the, the World War II historians in this audience 
well exceed uh, my knowledge or many of you out there. In fact, my friend uh, Emily Zanotti over at The Daily Wire, who we used to have on the show regularly, if you recall, she is, I believe, a, an, a, an actual World War II historian, writes histories of World War II. But it is the D-Day. It is D-Day, and, and it's, it's worth noting how for these different countries like the U.K., the relationship is never really in doubt. Uh, there, there is a, a bond between the United States and Britain that I think will be around and be special for, for centuries to come. And it is because of those, those ties of, of history, but also uh, the English common law that is the basis for our own system. Uh, the, well, we, we, we could speak for hours about just all the things that we borrow from. England is like our, our great-grandfather culture or something. You know, I mean, England is a country that we've borrowed so much from. So it's with that backdrop that I find it so it's so funny that the media is all, oh my gosh, you know, Trump is terrible and look what he's doing in England. And how many people could even define, can even separate out in their heads the difference in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and, and well, we know England is just the one country of England, right? But the United Kingdom versus Great Britain, the United Kingdom, I believe, is England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland is that producer Mike? Can you check? Can you fact check me on this one? I can't get this one wrong. That's the United. That's the UK, and then Great Britain is like everything. <laughs> Great Britain's all the stuff that they they have. Producer Mike, I need a fact check, or else I'm going to get yelled at by the very uh, high expectations of of the Team Buck audience for all things when it comes to accuracy. Um, Trump spoke about a possible trade deal. With the UK, that would certainly be interesting if that came came about. Play clip seven, please. I think we'll have a very, very substantial trade deal. It'll be a very fair deal, and I think that uh, this is something that your folks want to do, my folks want to do, and we want to do, and we're going to get it done. Uh, I'd just like to congratulate you on having done a fantastic job on behalf of the people of the United States, and it's an honor to have worked with you. And I don't know exactly what your timing is, but... Stick around. Let's do this deal. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Trump wants to do a deal with the UK. That'd be great. You know, more even deeper economic ties, more more efficient, more uh, more more prosperity. All kinds of things that that can be done here. And this doesn't get much focus at all. Instead, you have people talking about Trump's comments with Meghan Markle and all this. This is just nonsense. This is a complete distraction from what really matters. And you also see this this Trump baby protest. I got. I think the Trump baby thing is kind of funny. Like it's cute. It doesn't make me think that Trump is a bad guy. It's actually pretty. Uh, it's actually pretty endearing. I kind of want a Trump baby. You know what I'm talking about, producer Mike? This this blimp. That oh yeah, I love it. I yeah, think right? it's sort it's, of, it's, and it's like makes him like. I don't know if this the symbolism to me is like, hey, here comes President Trump, and we're he's all over you. He's like on top of you. I thought it was pretty funny. Like, he kind of looks like Boss Baby a yeah. little bit, you know? I think it totally like, backfired on him. <laughs> I think it's totally backfired on him, too. Like, it, 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 I, I find it endearing. I, I find it like, yeah. oh, yeah, look, Trump's the giant, you know. But didn't somebody stab the blimp or something to destroy it? <laughs> I, I did not see that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think someone's, I think so, or someone tried to. It, I mean, it, always, it's, not, it's not hard to find a knife around that part of town, I've, I've heard. Oh, man, look at you. Producer Mike Savage. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of bad. The, the the crime is rising in the UK, and they don't want to. They don't want to talk about that. That's not something that seems to get. To, and they also had all that whole spate of acid attacks for a while, which is like one of the most horrendous things I've, I've ever heard of. Yeah. 
but but Trump is uh, is not swayed at all by these protests in the UK. Here here's there's there's a few things here. One is what do UK protesters really think they accomplish by showing their displeasure with the arrival of Trump? What what is this supposed to do? I mean, I, I can't imagine thinking that it's a good usage of my time if I were some lib, which in the context of the UK means you're basically a commie, right? If I was some commie Brit, and not to be confused with the commie bear, and I decided to go go protest President Trump, why? What do I think I'm going? What do I think I'm going to accomplish in that whole process? That's really what I want to know. What do I think is going to come out of this? That's going to be a good thing. Uh, or, or that's worth anyone's time that Trump is never going to be allowed back in the UK or that it just seems it just seems like such a waste to me. And that's why the media is focused on it. I think it's just they're, they're always they're always looking for the negative with this president. It's it's not enough to oppose him on policy or to disagree with his ideas. It's a it's an obsession that must be fed constantly. The left's hatred of Trump is a fire that is all consuming. It has to constantly be given more fuel and the protests in the UK as if we're supposed to care about this. I like that Trump swats this stuff away. Play 10. As far as the protests, I have to tell you, because I commented on it yesterday, uh, we left the prime minister, the queen, the royal family. There were thousands of people on the streets cheering. And even coming over today, there were thousands of people cheering. And then I heard that there were protests. I said, where are the protests? I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today when I came, very small. So a lot of it is fake news, I hate to say. But you saw the, the people waving the American flag, waving your flag. It was tremendous spirit and love. There was great love. It was an alliance. And I didn't see the protesters until just a little while ago. And it was a very, very small group of people put in for political reasons. So it was fake news. Thank you. When he's calling it fake news, he's saying they're exaggerating this, that the coverage of it is meant to make it seem like it's a bigger thing than it is. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, if, if I were in a city and the well, I mean, I don't care about heads of state coming from anywhere. But if I were in a city and one of our a British prime minister showed up, I'd be like, oh, the Brits, we like the Brits, just like we like the Aussies and we like the Canadians and. You know, it wouldn't be a, the particular politics, I think, of, of the, the head of state from you know, look, even if Justin Trude, when he shows up, I'm like, yeah, he seems like a clown. But ladies think he's handsome and hey, whatever. Yay. Yay. Canada. We like we because they're representative of their country and their people and their policies generally don't really affect us all that much. So, so to have some burning hatred of the head of state of an allied country is of a closely allied country. It's just a weird position it's just a weird way to to approach it uh, but that is sure enough what they what they do that's what these uk protesters with their fat trump baby and all this stuff uh, and, and the media focus on these protests one thing producer mike thank you for the fact check here i mean i was right but i left one off the uk is england scotland northern ireland and wales that's right the welsh like uh what's his name christian bale is welsh so if you hear that funky accent when he's actually speaking the way he normally speaks. It's a Welsh accent. Uh, and then Great Britain is like all the stuff. All the things put together. Uh, yeah, there's that. So we got Raheem Kassam joining us here in a moment. He's going to give us his take. He's a Brit, so he's going to give us his take on how this whole thing is going. Uh, then we, in the third hour, are going to be talking about some more 
fantastic topics. I'm not even sure what they are yet, but they're going to be, as they always are, in-depth, insightful, hopefully entertaining. That's the, that's the plan for a, a, an excellent third hour of the show. So stay right where you are, team. We will be right back. I would say, yeah, I would think that it will happen, and it probably should happen. This is a great, great country, and it wants its own identity. It wants to have its own borders. It wants to run its own affairs. This is a very, very special place, and I think it deserves a special place. And I thought maybe for that reason and for others, but that reason it was going to happen. Yeah, I think it will happen. And I believe the prime minister's brought it to a very good point where something will take place in the not-too-distant future. I think she's done a very good job. Uh, I, I believe it would be good for the country, yes. There you get President Trump talking about what's going on in the U.K. He's got this big visit to uh, our brothers and sisters across the pond over in jolly old England and all the rest. We've got our friend Raheem Kassam joining to tell us just what's really happening here, what's going on behind the scenes and all the rest of it. Raheem, of course, is the global editor in chief of Human Events, humanevents.com for their latest. Raheem, great to have you, sir. What do you think about Trump's visit so far? What matters here? Well, you know, it's gone rather well, Buck, and I think that's much to the chagrin of the usual liberal chattering classes on both sides of the Atlantic. They all thought that Trump would go for this official state visit. Remember, that is the highest profile visit you can have uh, uh, with the Queen and at Buckingham Palace and all the red carpets rolling out. And I think they thought that he'd, you know, fall over and split his pants or something, the way they were talking about it in advance of the trip and, and in terms of formality, in terms of all the ceremony and, and the officialdom that surrounds uh, the trip, it's been nothing short of a 10 out of 10. Um, Trump and his entire family have, have knocked it out of the park. The top issues of trade and, and Brexit and NATO and defense spending have all been covered, and there's broad agreement on both sides um, of the Atlantic on those issues. So I think we might be seeing a resurgence in a sort of uh, UK-US special relationship, Margaret Thatcher-Ronald Reagan sense. Um, But of course, as you know, um, Britain is now waiting to see uh, who our Margaret Thatcher might be. Now, there was this back and forth with uh, the mayor of of London, uh, and Trump has has cut him down to size uh, a a few times. Here's what he had to say about Sadiq Khan, but I, I wanted to get, Raheem, your, your take, because I know you, you know quite a bit about Mr. Khan, uh, but here's what Trump said. Play nine. Well, I think he's been a uh, not very good mayor, from what I understand. He's done a poor job. Crime is up, a lot of problems. And I don't think he should be criticizing uh, a representative of the United States that can do so much good for the United Kingdom. Uh, we talked about it before. He should be positive, not negative. He's a negative force, not a positive force. And if you look at what he said, he hurts the people of this great country. And I think he should actually focus on his job. It'd be a lot better if he did that. He could straighten out some of the problems that he has and probably some of the problems that he's caused. What's the truth of Sadiq Khan, Rahim? It's interesting. I mean, you hear the president say there, not he shouldn't be insulting me. He said he shouldn't be insulting a representative of the United States because effectively the president is over there um, leading as America's diplomat in the world um, and feels 
slighted, and rightly so, over the fact that Sadiq Khan has done, I think now, three videos, several interviews, and an op-ed um, in his sort of uh, never-Trump uh, vein of, of, of trying to stop the president having a successful trip to the United Kingdom. And Trump is exactly right as well. Khan's not just doing a disservice and disrespect to the president and to the country of the United States of America. He's also doing a disservice to Britain, because Britons don't want to be represented by Sadiq Khan. London may have chosen Sadiq Khan as its mayor, but you get outside of London, which is politically, demographically very similar to New York City, actually uh, the, the respect both for the United States and whomever its president may be is actually rather large. Now, Khan himself is a former lawyer who has represented 9-11 attackers. He represented Louis Farrakhan and his Nation of Islam. Um, Khan has been known to be mixed up with uh, a number of deeply, deeply uh, divisive uh, groups. He has even recently placed a group that is known for female genital mutilation at the front and center of an event in London. And all the while, knife crime and robbery and rape and congestion is going up in London. Public policy projects are behind schedule and over budget. This man has been an absolute unmitigated disaster, not just for London, but for, for the United Kingdom's perception on the world stage. Because let's face it, most tourists who go to Britain go to London. Most things that you read about when you read about Britain nowadays somehow have something to do with London. So I'm delighted, as you say, that President Trump cut Sadiq Khan down to size, and as we all know from what the president tweeted the other day, that's a very diminutive size indeed. Raheem Kassam, everybody, Global Editor-in-Chief, Human Events, humanevents.com, for more of his latest. Raheem, th uh, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, everybody tells us that this relationship is in some trouble. I mean, it's, it is ironic, it's sadly ironic, that 10 years ago we would have said that the two most dynamic, strongest democracies in the world were the United States and the United Kingdom, and both of us are now in existential crisis. The Brits, of course, Britain, of course, because of the possibility of Brexit and the uncertainty of what's going to happen in its relationship with the EU, the United States, because of Donald Trump and Trumpism. We expect our president, any president, on a ceremonial visit to represent all Americans with dignity, with grace, and the president hasn't done that. This is not the way that American presidents act overseas, have acted overseas, and frankly it's embarrassing to see the American president call out people in this savage, brutal, political tirade of criticizing opposition leaders in another allied country. All blather all claptrap malarkey garbage on msnbc which is not surprising to any of you there from former ambassador nick burns uh, who is saying that both countries th this is the quote all right before before i get too deep into why this guy's an imbecile and i don't care how many languages he speaks or how many fancy countries he lived in as ambassador or whatever it doesn't matter what he says is stupid his analysis is poor. Countries are in existential crisis. The UK and America are in existential crisis. And then he goes on to say on the American side of this equation, because of Trump being embarrassing, that, that puts us in existential crisis because he doesn't act with the, the presidential dignity that we expect overseas because he criticizes an opposition figure. What, the president can't say that the mayor of London acts like a punk? The mayor of London acts like a punk. What's the problem? Why can't we have adult conversations in politics? 
why why can't the expectation be in an era where we now have constant uh, access to everyone's thoughts via social media and everything can be live streamed and maybe that the time for all this boilerplate political non-speak speak is past maybe we should now embrace a future where politicians can just tell us what they really think and we expect that they will act like human beings and not robots, not, you know, not cyborgs that are programmed to, you know, I will speak about my love for America and the Constitution like somebody who is not from America. Why? But remember, he said this this guy that's going on MSNBC to wax philosophical about how terrible the relationship, the relationship is great between the UK and, and America. You know what we're, you know what, and this is, I got into a little bit of a, of a uh, of a tiff today with some of the people on the on the uh, panel at Rising because I just get so sick of this. We're lowering our stature in the world. We're lowering our stature in the world because of Trump. How so? Has Trump invaded a has Trump invaded a foreign country with sketchy at best rationale and perhaps foolish foolish ideas about what's going to happen there the answer is no are any of you listening to this right now or are you are you sitting here and because of a trump specific decision as commander-in-chief you have to worry about you know realistically the possibility of a of you know casualties affecting friends loved ones people from your town people from your family anything like that shouldn't that be much more important than Oh, does he bow properly to... Oh, that's right. He's not supposed to bow. He's the president. That was Obama's deal. Obama went around bowing, apologizing for him. It was an apology tour. The media was always trying to cover for him. It was an apology tour. Isn't it more important that on, on the world stage we have a president who is approaching problems from the perspective of, I represent my country, America. I don't represent the international community. I'm not part of some cosmopolitanist, one-world government mentality. And I don't want to do things that are really bad for my people. You know, you know you, to compare, I would say you compare Trump to both Obama and Bush's foreign policy, and there is no comparison. I mean, Obama was a disaster on foreign policy. A disaster. How does it raise our stature to destroy Libya and turn it into... A, for a while, an ISIS stronghold. They actually had ISIS training camps. They're beheading Christians on the beach. You know, turn Libya into an ISIS stronghold. Now it's like you know, warring militias, and who the heck knows what's going to happen over there. That was also Hillary Clinton involved in that one, by the way. How does it make us look good for Obama to sit on his hands and do nothing, to, to take it upon himself to declare a red line in Syria and to take the mantle of international leadership and and be you know pushing with the united nations to get some kind of a ceasefire in syria and just fail miserably for years and while a half million people die engage in troop training programs for the for the rebellion inside of syria that are massive failures allow the rise of isis terrorist attacks in europe copycat attacks in the united states all this stuff that's happened but Obama raised our stature on the world stage. Why? Because he, because he gave fancy-sounding speeches that meant nothing? That meant absolutely nothing? 
Bush. Oh, boy. You know, well-intentioned, a good guy, a patriot. I mean, loves this country, but not a strategic thinker. Not a guy that really should have been in the should have been in the role. I, you know, I, I don't think he was a bad president, but I think he was he was okay. He was mediocre, and I don't think we should be shy about saying that either. I think most American politicians we should think of as mediocre to less than acceptable. We should criticize politicians in their roles. We should hold them to account. Now, I'm not. I'm somebody who was very involved in the Bush era in terms of foreign policy. You know, thanks to President Bush, I ended up in two war zones. So, I can look at this and say, yeah, those are. But but this talking point here from this guy about how we're in existential crisis. We look so bad on the world stage. You're only in existential crisis in America if you're an MSNBC watching lib who thinks that having a president who goes around saying that America has made all kinds of mistakes and done bad things and is going to bow and scrape and kneel and apologize to everybody. It's going to try to make friends with the Castro regime in Cuba, beg the Iranian mullahs, the dictators of Tehran, to be our buddies. You know, only only those people think we're in existential crisis. But when you look at what has really happened under Trump versus previous presidencies so far, to say that Trump's foreign policy is reckless and dangerous and is undermining our stature is laughable. Is laughable. You know what undermines our stature in the world? Starting wars that we don't win. You know what undermines our stature in the world? Messing up whole countries and then saying, oh gosh, we didn't know this was going to be so hard. And that has been a bipartisan, a bipartisan failure in the Mideast and other regions stretching back for the last 20 years. Medicare for all may sound good. But it's actually not good policy, nor is it good politics. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. A hundred. That's John Delaney. I love it, man. This, this uh, you know, California Democrat convention thing that they had there. I forget what it's called exactly, but this California, you know, congregation of Democrats that occurred. You had Hickenlooper say socialism is not the answer. Boo! Boo! Because <laughs> they love socialism in California. Oh, man, sure they do. And then you have John Delaney get up there and says, Medicare for all is not good policy or good politics. He's right! He's trying to help them. He's telling them the truth. This is a Democrat speaking to Democrats saying something that is objectively and obviously true. And they freak out at him. They do not, they do not want to hear it. They don't want to hear it at all. You know, I, I interviewed Delaney today. Only three more, only three more shows. I was about to say real news. Gosh, that's really a throwback. Only three more episodes of uh, Hill TV Rising for me, folks. Friday is my last day. So those of you who haven't had a chance to catch it yet, you could... Uh, I don't know. You'll see me looking very sleepy in the morning. I've I, I've pretty much been broken by the by the schedule of waking up super early and doing this show until nine o'clock at night. Uh, but I, I got the chance to uh, to speak to John Delaney and speak to him about a whole bunch of policies today on rising. And I, I have to tell you, he's a uh, what he's a, he was a Democrat uh, congressman from Maryland, I think, and he's a 
seems like a reasonable enough guy. I'm sure he says crazy stuff about climate change and, you know, crazy stuff about a woman's right to choose at any moment of the pregnancy up to birth. And, you know, because that's what Democrats, you have to, there are certain crazy as a Democrat you have to embrace. There's certain crazy that there's just no way around, right? You have to know that this is the stuff you got to say if you want to be in the Democrat good graces. You, you're, you're just going to have to, you know, go along for the ride on this stuff. There's really no way around it. Um, but then there are areas where you can sort of tell who has ever run a business or knows how to read a balance sheet or or just operates in some version of reality and recognizes a lot of Democrat talking points as just that rabble rousing of the of the leftist mob, but not really policy. And Delaney kind of strikes me as at least from what I got to talk to him about today. One of those guys. I was very tired this morning, though, so I don't even remember much of what I said to him. Yeah, sorry. You know, once you get in the once you get in the very latter stages of doing a TV show, you're kind of just like, all right, I'm going to be there and uh, then I'm going to be done. But the, the interesting thing about Delaney saying Medicare for all is not good policy or good politics, he's right. Let's start with the, with the policy aspect of it. Medicare for all, how is this supposed to work? Well, Medicare is not a true single-payer system. As I pointed out before, there's cost-sharing in Medicare. And the, if you're going to eliminate all of that cost-sharing, by the way, the program would become even more expensive than what Medicare is right now. And I mean, I believe Medicare Part B, people have said, is effectively effectively run almost like a socialist, democratic socialist. But that's a perhaps getting too deep in the weeds right now. But but Medicare in general, it's very popular with people, but it's it's popular for reasons that are not necessarily always good. Like most people who use Medicare take out twice what they put into it. So it's it's being built on the backs of future generations and higher taxes and lower earnings and lesser uh, quality of life, financially at least, for future generations to pay for Medicare now. That's just a fact. You're going to expand that, though, and you're going to say everyone's going to be able to get Medicare. Okay, well, then do you expand access to doctors? Do you expand the medical system itself? Because when people have no skin in the game, when they don't have to make decisions, where am I going to spend my resources? Where am I not? I could have had I could have had ankle surgery. I could have fixed. I've fixed. I've got a deviated septum. I could fix a broken nose. I got a, you know, I go through a whole, a whole list of different surgeries and procedures and things that I could have that I haven't done for one reason or another. But one of them is cost. One of them is I didn't want to write a check for however many thousands of dollars necessarily to have one thing done or another thing done. I didn't want to do some of these procedures and, and fixes. and the, But if it was all getting paid for by the state, I might say, yeah, sign me up. No risk to me. You have to incentivize good choices. And look, this is another part of the healthcare system not everyone wants to talk, to talk about. You also have to incentivize people trying to be healthy. Now, I know that, that there are a lot of people that, you know, that this is not saying that if someone gets sick, man, I've gotten very sick. I, I'm not saying that you can prevent getting sick, but, you know, things like don't go skydiving, taking bong rips, eating a giant bucket of General So chicken, you know, five times a week, right? I mean, there are some things that you probably... Isn't General So chicken delicious? Something you probably shouldn't do, bad for your health. But if, if you're not going to have to deal with the financial consequences of ill health, I mean, that's at a macro social level, this is not a good idea. And that's why having other people pay for all of your health care needs is not good. What we should have in this country is catastrophic health insurance. Right? What we should have is a tiered catastrophic health insurance system. That's true insurance 
We should stop thinking that our first expense is going to be the car payment and eating out and start thinking that, you know, you've got to put aside some money for your reasonable medical expenses and maybe tier it so that people that make a certain amount of money, their catastrophic you know coverage kicks in at this level. People with another amount of money, just like the tax system. And in any legitimate medical expense above X dollars goes goes into the actual insured. You know, that is where you dip into the insured pool and you go from there. But that's it should be insurance. What we have now is just the redistribution of, of health care under the rubric of insurance. And that's not that's not what's supposed to happen. That's just dishonest. It's not what we're being told it is, but that is what it is. And this whole notion that you're going to show up and you're going to pay twenty dollars and see a doctor. And it's going to be a great doctor. And that's all you ever have to worry about. That's just not realistic for everybody. That can't be shared by everyone. That's not going to happen. We don't have enough of that. We don't have enough resources to do that. Uh, people say, yes, we do, Buck. No, we don't. I know plenty of people have to wait a long time to see specialists. My specialist network in D.C. right now, and I have health insurance, stinks. Stinks. Doctors I have access to in D.C., second or third tier. And I have health insurance. If I've really got a problem, I end up going to a doctor that I'm like, look, here's my, you know, here's my visa card. As scary as that is, that's what you have to do sometimes. But on the bad politics side of it, and this is where Delaney's obviously correct. On the bad politics side, you're going to you're going to take away 150 million Americans private health insurance plans, Democrats. You really think that's you think that's a winning strategy? Tell them, sorry, this plan that 70 percent of you like, it's going to go away and we're going to put you on the government plan. Oh, okay. Do any of you who have private health insurance listening to this wish? Oh, you know what? You know what I had instead? A one size fits all mandated by Washington, D.C. federal government health care plan where there's no one trying to watch out for costs, where there's no competition whatsoever for policies, for business. It's just whatever the government tells me I'm going to get. I mean, you know, this is where you start to say, are they going to, you know, hand out vouchers and tell us that we also can wait in bread lines? I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. Oh, Buck, but look at the different healthcare. Yeah, there, there's a healthcare system in Canada. There's also a private health insurance market there. And I ask yet again, do you, do you want, would you want to be really sick? Would you want to be in bad shape in Canada? Or would you rather be really sick in the United States? You look at cancer survival rates, and there's a number of indicators for how the healthcare system performs here versus in other countries. Um, and if you, want, if you want Nordic government services, well, then you better be prepared to pay Nordic tax rates. 60% of your income. Everybody. Everybody. You know, maybe a cutoff at like 20 grand. That's it. Everybody else, you know, above that, 60%. So Delaney's right, but he gets booed for it. That's kind of a summation of the modern Democratic Party. If you're right, they boo you. We have a moral obligation now uh, to investigate this president. Impeachment proceedings will give us more legal leverage to be able to get the information Congress needs to get to the bottom of what his administration has done Mm -hmm. while they're in office. The black and brown community is overwhelmingly in favor of impeachment. The, The Democratic base is overwhelmingly in favor of impeachment. The people who aren't are kind of white people in the middle, right? Truck drivers... You think that the president will be impeached, uh, or at least proceedings will begin in the House at some point, but just not right now. Yes, exactly what I feel. Only impeachment gives them the leverage and the mechanism necessary for us to know exactly what has happened and who is responsible for that. I believe that the president deserves to be impeached. They all say it. 
they're all making a lot of noise about it. You know, oh, he's got to be impeached. Or we've got to use the impeachment proceeding. Notice how they go into the process again. Favorite Democrat trick. Oh, we're not making a decision. We're just putting you through the process. We're not going to tell you what we're going to do to you. We're just going to make sure that you're miserable while we figure it out. You know, There's a reason why we have, for example, provisions like habeas corpus and there are legal remedies for the government just holding you, just ruining you, breaking you while they process you. Right? And that's, in fact, why so much of our constitutional protection is a function of process protection, because people who are in power often want to hide their real aim. They don't want to tell people what they're doing, and they love being able to rely on, oh, it's just the way we're just going through what we have to here. It, it is just the machinery at work of government. And that way, nobody's really responsible. Right? This is how the bureaucracy, for example, of a law enforcement agency uh, can become, in many ways, immune to criticism or immune to oversight. Who's really responsible at the FBI and the DOJ for what was done to George Papadopoulos and Carter Page? And well, a bunch of people are responsible and nobody's really responsible. And thus, the system continues on unchanged and without accountability. Who's really responsible for pushing impeachment for? Well, a lot of Democrats and no Democrats. They talk about it. They say they want to investigate. They say, okay, what is he going to be impeached for? Well, they need to figure that out still. Right? Is it, what, what is the old line? I always get it wrong. The line from Alice in Wonderland, uh, you know, sentence, verdict first, trial later, or sentence first, trial later. This is what the Democrats, this is what the Democrats like to do. Well, well they know he's guilty. And they know that they have a moral obligation to punish him for that guilt. But they first want to go through a trial because they're not going to jump to conclusions. This is what they say with a straight face. I mean, this is why Democrats are crazy. This, this has become a, a mental disorder. The whole Russia collusion thing re really has turned into, you know, the, the equivalent of, of people who are, are flat earthers or conspiracy theorists of one kind or another. There are no facts that will penetrate the bubble. There are, there are no ideas that will make them reevaluate what they've already been led to or, or led themselves to believe. Uh, I, I was happy to see that there are others. You know, I tweeted out a few weeks ago about how if what they did to the Trump campaign isn't spying, I need to understand then how the media has been writing about the spying on Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, for a long time. And now William McGurn of the, over at the Wall Street Journal has written about the FBI spying. What's the difference between surveillance of Carter Page and Martin Luther King? Well, this is so important, isn't it? Because the reason that the media jumped out of their shorts the moment that Attorney General Barr said that there was spying going on is because spying has a connotation it's not factually untrue at all. It is spying, spying and surveillance. Surveillance is just a fancy French word for spying. Surveillance. Fancy French word for spying. Same thing. But by saying spying, then it becomes very hard to control the narrative, right? Then they understand that 
connotation and the flavor of words, the the way that words bring about certain thoughts and, and their responses that come along with hearing them, Democrats know this. I mean, when you're in a propaganda fight, you pay very close attention to the specifics of the words used. But that's why I find it so interesting that the Democrats really tip their hand on this. Instead of immediately saying, call it whatever you want, it was legitimate, they really didn't want that word to be used because they know about the effect it'll have on public perception. And I think Attorney General Barr has scored some major hits, major hits on these deep state clowns by just being very rational and reasonable and not getting flustered and working through these, you know, still one of my favorite things of all time was in the press conference he had where that reporter chimes in. You guys remember this? Attorney General Barr is talking about the initial Mueller report, the first press conference he had, and he referred to something as unprecedented and this female reporter, I forget where she, you referred to, I mean, but like you're just like making these judgments and you just like referred to what's happened to the president as unprecedented. And Barr goes, is there a precedent for it? And she goes, no. And he goes, well, then it's unprecedented. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that was that. And his line, everybody dies, is, I mean, this guy, he's my, he is my favorite government official right now. Attorney, I'm just going to say it. Attorney General Barr is my spirit animal. He is number one. He is, uh, you know, f- far away. I mean, look, Trump's amazing for what he does, too. But in terms of everybody who's working for the administration, I mean, Pompeo probably comes in for me at number three, but Barr is Barr is definitely, you know, number number two. He's my number one Trump man, and he's not even a Trumpster. He's just a guy who understands the bare knuckle realities of politics in D.C. Isn't going to get flustered. Isn't going to flee the battlefield. And this is why Adam Schiff, that slimy lowlife of a congressman, keeps on trying to come back at Barr with whatever he can. I mean, he called. Think, listen to this. He he called him. Well, first, let's talk about the spying issue. Play clip five. Probably early throw out uh, terms like spying uh, and pretend he doesn't know just how pejorative that term is. Uh, he is a, a smart man and understands exactly how incendiary what his allegation is. And it's designed to be. Uh, that's that's why he is, uh, I think, falling into such legitimate criticism for acting as effectively a henchman of the president henchman of the president notice notice how Schiff in that one soundbite this is classic shifty Schiff he criticizes Barr for the usage of a term that's pejorative and unnecessary and then goes on to use a completely pejorative and unnecessary term for Barr he could say that he's being you know he's being a a partisan for the president a henchman you know for the president Ooh, henchman of Trump yeah, the term spying is pejorative because all spying without justification is pejorative. Here's one, shifty shift. If I were spying on Russia right now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, if I were spying, then I'm spying. If you ask an American, Buck spying on Russia is probably a good thing. If you ask a Russian, they say it's a bad thing. Who's really right? Spying exists in this gray area, doesn't it? The act itself is neither good nor bad. It has to be justified. I know something about this because I used to work for a spying agency. And that's where the Democrats fall apart. Justify this then. Let's establish that there was spying because there was. Now justify it. No, they can't. 
And they know this inspector general report is coming out in a matter of weeks. And they know that it is going to drop like a piano off the proverbial rooftop onto the Russia collusion lie. And that's why Schiff is going after Barr so hard here. Play four. Because they're stonewalling us on just about everything, it also means that we might not know uh, unless whistleblowers step forward uh, whether Bill Barr is abusing his authority even beyond the fundamental abuse by trying to exonerate the president on obstruction of justice. And so we find ourselves, I think, for the first time with an attorney general who really is the president's defense lawyer and spokesperson and who's quite good at it and has the veneer of respectability uh, to camouflage what he's doing. He is not the, the um, uh, sophist that uh, Giuliani is. He's much more dangerous. And I think he's the second most dangerous man in the country for that reason. He's the second greatest man in the government right now. I love it. All you have to know about Barr is how much the libs hate him and how much, they, how much he rattles them. Schiff is rattled by this guy. And you can hear it when he's talking about him. It's because Barr is smarter than Adam Schiff is. Barr's a better lawyer. Barr is tactically the equal of any of these slimy, underhanded Democrats on Capitol Hill. That's why they hate him. He's done nothing unethical, nothing wrong. In fact, he's been a rock star all along. And yet they say things like he's the second most dangerous man in the country. Dangerous to the psycho libs, maybe. Democratic leadership in the House, they have a new policy meant to protect incumbents, people currently in office. The policy is no challenger to that to that seat. Uh, no consultant can work with a challenger to that seat. Now, the idea is to help keep the people who are in Congress, make them stay in Congress. Here's the problem. Two thirds of those people in those safe house seats are older white men. The people who are making the challenges often, yeah. often female, often younger, often people of color. So people are looking at this new policy and they're thinking, not a good look for the Democratic Party, unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Is it going to change, do we think? I don't know. We'll have to stay tuned. All right. All Talk about it tomorrow. White men are everywhere, Tony. Everywhere. <laughs> oh, my gosh. White men are everywhere. I know she I know she was kidding, but in the context of the segment, there's a reason she made that joke. And it's because notice that reporter that was on CBS talking about how there are there there's this essentially a white privilege protection racket in congress now and that it's a bad look for the democratic party to have in place anything that benefits incumbents i would just like to put something out there for the for the left to 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 chew on to think about a little bit maybe just maybe the reason that there are all of these uh, different incumbents who are trying to pass these rules in, in the House that will or in the Congress that will protect them is just because they are people who want to maintain their positions and, and, and their power. And it's not, in fact, a, a, a program that is rooted in racism. You know, maybe individuals like their power, like their stuff, like to be important no matter who they are. And when they have an, they have an ability to maintain that, they will do that. But it's not about skin color. You know, they, they like to make things about race that I think quite often. It, well, I, I think very frequently it actually has nothing to do with with race. It's much more about class structure or about basic uh, basic power dynamics that are not necessarily reflective of any kind of racial thinking. Uh, but this is also now a this is also a problem the Democrats have with their 
field. You have this this party that talks all the time about how it is about it is so motivated to help minorities and to to push for you know better uh, advancement and and economic justice and social justice and all this stuff, particularly for uh, marginalized and, and undermined groups. And th- there's a very real question, by the way, as to whether in American society today it's really fair to call some of these groups uh, undermined and marginalized as a function of law. There are now, quote, oppressed groups that have extra legal rights. This is just a fact. Uh, there is no legal discrimination against some of the groups the left views as marginalized, but there is legalized discrimination against people not in those groups. And then and when you bring this up, you're just part of the patriarchy and white privilege and you're a bad person. You're not allowed to have a real discussion about it. But there's this sense of shame that Democrats have. And it's not just this the CBS report I've never seen or heard of before. There is this sense of, oh, gosh, you know, what are we going to do? We have Biden and Bernie Sanders, two older white males who are leading a Democrat field that has a number of. Uh, minorities, a number of women, a number of, uh, well, one member of the LGBT community. So why is that the case within the within Democrat circles? If diversity and inclusiveness or inclusion are so important, shouldn't Democrats lead by example? But then you think, well, hold on, do Democrats lead by example in a lot of other areas of public life? Do they lead by example on climate change? Do they lead by example on paying more to the federal government in taxes than they have to because they want because they want to show people that that's so important. No, of course not. They like the power to force other people to do things that they think are good, but they don't want to necessarily be included in those who are forced. So they want to bash Republicans for for being a party of older white males um, and then don't really know what to do when it turns out there are a lot of Democrats who are very powerful, who are older white males. Um, There are a lot of Democrats who don't want that system to change largely because they're the people who are in power. Um, But yeah, white, white men are white men are everywhere. There's there is this really kind of pathetic debasing of of whiteness that a lot of Democrat officials have to go through now who, who are white people like Eric Swalwell, who remember we played that audio for you and he was saying, well, you know, yeah, I'm. Uh, just I understand a uh, privilege and there's some areas I can't understand. And, you know, sometimes I just the, the self-flagellation, not to be confused, uh, not to be confused with flatulation, flagellation that occurs from all these Democrats. It's it's kind of a pathetic spectacle, but it's because ultimately all of this is is really nonsense. It, it, it has no meaning. Even if you talk about white privilege incessantly, which Democrats these days do. And as I and as I've noted for you on this show, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. The whole discussion of white privilege is something that we have to talk about. That's just popped up in the last few years. The phrase white privilege and the usage of white supremacy as a term, something that I've noted has expanded far beyond, you know, when I was growing up, you thought of white supremacy as something along the lines of the movie American History X and neo-Nazis and shaved head, you know, jackbooted thugs and all that. Oh, no, not, now white supremacy is too many white guys in the halls of Congress. Now white supremacy is you not accepting that maybe you haven't earned what you have because you are, assuming those of you, some of you who are listening are white, uh, many of you who are listening are white, 
you haven't earned fully what you have because it came via white privilege. And if you don't accept that, well, then you're actually part of the problem. And this is the this is the way the, the argument on the left is supposed to go. That part of it is not particularly new. I remember being in college and I was told that if you work against racism, then you're OK. But if you merely sit pa- uh, sit idly by your uh, your presence, your mere existence is an enabling of racism. You, you must join with the left. You must be an ally, a term they like to use a lot. But uh, older white male Democrats, folks, they they the Democrats don't know what to do about the fact that they still have far too many older white males in positions of, of authority. So I wonder what I wonder what the way forward for them will be. We will have to see. I have a feeling that they're going to have an older white male who turns out to be their nominee. I still think it could be Bernie Sanders. I know that's crazy. Joe, Bi- Joe, Bi- look, Joe Biden's going to lose. If it's Joe Biden, he's going to lose. So I still think it's going to be Bernie Sanders, um, but maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm getting to be an older white male myself, and so my opinion on this, I suppose, is irrelevant. Should be pushed aside. I'm just part of the white male patriarchy. We'll be right back. Many of you who listen to this show know that I can be a bit of a skeptic about scientific consensus on on a number of things. One of the areas. Oh gosh, don't even get me started. Oh, there's so many of them. One of the areas. Uh, why don't doctors know more about gastrointestinal health, gut flora, the microbiome? They know very little about it. It's it's shocking when you talk to most MDs about what's going on in your GI tract. As, as somebody who has celiac, let me tell you, I'm like, hey, wh- why does this thing happen to me, this celiac disease? Doctor's like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, autoimmune disorders of all kinds. Why does the immune system attack itself? We don't know. The best they can do is usually give people steroids of some kind or try to give them something that will dampen the immune response so it stops basically eating at the body that it's supposed to be protecting. Uh, There's a lot of areas where we just don't have the kind of knowledge that those of us who look at the world around us with our handheld supercomputers and our constant you know, photo and video connectivity and man on the moon and all this crazy stuff that we can do. Uh, That was a while ago, I know, but... Or was it? Uh, but with I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> there's no, there's no man on the moon truth or stuff going on here. Or is there? Uh, but one area that I always find so funny is is nutrition and the impact of different foods on your health. Is milk good for you? Depends on what day you Google. Is milk good for you? Uh, depends on what year you're asking. I've told you before about how I remember as a, as a kid going to school, seeing these pallets of disgusting margarine on our lunch tables at school and thinking, that's not food. Why are they making it? Oh, because it's better for you than actual butter? Turns out that's not true. And then you look back at the craze of uh, light and sugar-free and fat-free and all these different, these are all bad, bad things. Um, replacing sugar with chemicals that taste like sugar is almost always a bad idea. And removing fat from foods is a bad idea. All these things. And now here we have another one. You're like, Buck, why are you getting into this today? Here's a a study on, on, yes, CNN. So is it fake news? Probably. But the study says the following. White meat is just as bad for you as red beef when it comes to your cholesterol level. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a doctor's office uh, somewhere or, or heard a doctor say somewhere, 
limit your red meat intake, eat more, eat more chicken, eat more white meat, you know, don't eat the dark meat of the chicken, don't eat the skin of the chicken, it's going to make you uh, have high cholesterol, or it could add to you having high cholesterol. Turns out eating chicken just as bad as eating red meat, according to this study. Now, is it true? I don't know. Will it be true tomorrow? I don't know. But the point here is that you got to kind of make your own choices and learn your own stuff about all of this. If you're relying on our scientific betters, the wisdom of, of science, hashtag science for some of this stuff, you're not going to get an answer. You have to read about it yourself. You have to figure out what works for you. Eggs, for example. I remember being told, oh, no, you can't have eggs every day. Why not? Turns out that eggs every day does not increase your cholesterol. Really, the worst thing for you is sugar. But there are so many companies that have uh, that, that make billions of dollars off of products that are largely sugar-driven and sugar-based that that's not a message that anybody wants to get out there. I mean, that that is true. Sugar is very addictive and very bad for you. Um, but people don't get told that. Instead, we're told, oh, you know, don't eat the... Don't eat the fattier cut of red meat. Make sure you just eat the part that you don't really want to eat. I disagree with all that. But that's right. Eating chicken, folks. Eating chicken can also cause a, a spike. According to this study, your cholesterol, I, I'm, I don't think that, I, I think it's amazing at this point, given how much heart disease is a major health issue and really still considered, I mean, heart disease and cancer are the two biggest um, health issues in this country, although I think diabetes is getting right up there now, type 2 diabetes, not type 1. But what we don't know about bodies and about health, and it, is, see, it really seems to just always outrank what we do know. Uh, there's so many important areas where science is still in its infancy, and if someone can't answer the question at this point whether butter is something you should eat, whether red meat, whether whole fat milk. I've been drinking whole fat milk for a long time. I can tell you I was doing better with whole fat milk than I was with skim milk, which, as you know, is water that's lying about being milk. Hashtag Ron Swanson. Hashtag Roll Calls up next. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. It's that time to take a chance, just relax, and do the roll call. Yeah. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. How many of you even remember Cat Stevens? Actually, a lot of you probably remember him much better than I do. Remember my uh, one of my coaches used to say he was a big Cat Stevens fan. He said, guys, you're at a party. All you got to do is just put on the cat and let the cat purr. And I thought that was a cool thing to say at the time. Now that I say it out loud, it's kind of weird. All right, Jane writes, Hey, Buck, heard you say on your show last night you were an ancestor of the forgotten founder, George Mason, maybe one of the most important. He gave us the Bill of Rights. That is correct, Jane. He wrote the Virginia Bill of Rights, which was largely used as a model for the Bill of Rights. And yeah, uh, and my, I'm sure if my dad's listening to the show right now, he often listens. He's saying, Buck, you're absolutely direct descendant of George Mason. And I, okay. I, I believe it. I just don't really spend a lot of time on the Ancestry.com stuff. Michael writes, Buck, 
Since we know the story, the Hillary Steele dossier Mueller investigation, shouldn't the Democrat candidates be asked what they think about it and what they would do since they want to be president in 2020? They shouldn't get away with pretending it didn't happen and supporting Trump impeachment. Get them on the record. Well, Michael, I don't think it's hard to get them on the record about this. I think they talk about it all the time and they are finding different ways or they're they're trying to find the most effective ways to be the most anti-Trump and to bash Trump with the most uh, the most viciousness that they possibly can. So that's something that they are certainly working on. Uh, And I don't think it's going to be difficult to get them to say that. In fact, I think they're going to try to outdo one another. Here we go. Um, Marissa writes, Hey Buck, my husband is a huge fan. You're a household name around here. Though I don't get to listen in as often as my husband, I always enjoy what you have to share. He's told me all about your beard, so I feel the need to share with you a product my small company makes for the bearded gentleman like yourself. I founded Wilder North Botanicals four years ago and formulated two beard oils, the Woodsman and the Marine. They smell good, they condition your beard, and they're 100% natural and cruelty-free. If you're interested, let me know where I can send them. Thank you, Marissa. Uh, Well, Marissa, that sounds great. And um, I'm happy to send you the uh, address of the Freedom Hut. And if you want to send a couple of those along, I'll definitely give them a shot. Although I I really chopped the beard down today. I'll have to post a photo on the Instagram, which reminds me, if you're listening to the podcast, follow me on the gram, the Instagram. Buck Sexton is my handle. It's pretty easy. It's a weird name. Easy to remember. There are other Buck Sextons, though. Believe it or not, I'm not the only one running around out there. Glenn, hey, Buck, awesome show. Between you and Rush, I get all the rational news I need daily. Well, thank you, Glenn. That puts me in the most elite company. Could you please take some time to evaluate the chances of a Republican take back of the House and keeping Congress? Also hope you check out our new app, Parler, like Twitter, but with free speech, no banning. Uh, Glenn, I haven't heard about Parler. Or is it parlay? You wrote parlor here. I don't know, but I'm guessing it might be parlay or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, P-A-R-L-E-R or O-R. As to a Republican take back of the House, it's just so hard to assess anything accurately right now. I mean, even to do analysis of it, the the landscape is going to change between now and Election Day in some pretty profound ways. So I don't think it I don't think I can really tell you much other than I know that the Senate map is going to be somewhat uh, unfavorable for Democrats, which is a good thing for Republicans. And in terms of the House, look, if the economy's strong, I think we're in good shape uh, because you'll also have Trump atop the ticket, which you did not have in the midterm. And generally speaking, if you have a president who's presiding over a good economy and going to cruise to re-election, I think you're in good shape with trying to get the House of Representatives back under control. Kathy sent a, wow. Hey, Buck, we just ditched cable because Hulu now has Fox News. We save a lot by ditching uh, by ditching Google TV. Also, my husband and I are original Saturday team, Buck. It was seriously the best hours of our Saturdays. Thank you so much. Good for you for speaking your mind always. We'll always have your back. My husband made those team Buck bags for a meetup that we left one for you at the Blaze Studios. Hopefully you got it. Kathy, that is so cool, this Team Buck meetup bag. I did not get it, unfortunately. So I will call the Blaze and demand my Team Buck bag. That looks really cool, what you sent me. Thank you so much. And, man, that's a that's an old photo. I was a youth, I was a useful, uh, a youthful, a youthful, 
a youthful young buck in that photo. Still youthful, I hope. Working on it. Uh, let's see here. Skip writes, uh, it occurs to me that even if we violent evil gun owners were to turn in all of our guns, we would still be violent evil people just unarmed. Then they would want to do something to intercede in our violent evilness, perhaps intern us in re-education camps. And when that failed, extermination. Well, Skip, that's a little intense, my friend. But I, I, your initial point there about how you'll still be considered violent, evil people by leftists, that's absolutely true. Your gun ownership and support of the Second Amendment is merely used as a proxy by your political opponents for why you're not a good person. Because you, if you are a gun owner and you support the Second Amendment, you tend to also be more fiscally conservative. It's likely, but not necessarily the case. You're socially conservative. More likely you go to church on Sunday, more likely you're married, more all these things that they broadly identify with conservatism. And it, it has become a major cultural, uh, de a defining cultural separation. That's so there you have it. Uh, yes, indeed. Tom writes, Buck, use the term brainless Democrat robots. Not to tell you how to do your job, but is such redundancy necessary on air? Keep up the otherwise great work. And looking forward to more Shields High podcasts. Um, well, can a robot have an artificial, and I, I don't know, an artificial brain? Do you guys remember Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? A few of you know what I'm talking about. Very few of you, though. He was like a brain that was uh, going to take over the world and had this sort of, like, talk like this. Just say. He had, like, a kind of a like saliva talking thing, crying the brain. I don't know. Okay. I know weird. You guys think I'm, I am weird. I sit and talk to myself basically. Well, I mean, hundreds of thousands of you, but I, I sit and, and talk into a microphone for three hours every day. That's normal people. Producer Mike is shaking his head. Yes. Right. Normal people don't really do that. It's a, it's a thing that only weird people do. I seem, although I, I was told recently that somebody, somebody said that the only thing about me that they felt like wasn't, good for media was that I was too nice and too normal. And I took that as I took that as a compliment. I was like, okay, well, I mean, not good for my media career, maybe, but I'm too nice and too normal. Uh, let's see. We have, but uh, I'm not that nice. I mean, I'm pretty nice. I'm not that nice. Caroline writes, Hey Buck, I've heard you downplay the effect of Russia's interference in our election. Whereas I agree, there is no effect on election outcome. I don't think that's the real aim of the Russian interference. The Russians weren't trying to get Trump elected as much as they were trying to undermine American confidence in our governmental system. They exposed corruption at the DNC by showing how Hillary had the primary rigged. They sowed discord among American political factions and eroded our belief that we are capable of rational self-governance. You describe the interference as a prank, which it was, but wow, it worked like a charm. It has all the trappings of a Russian disinformation scheme, which they are infamous for, and I'm sure Commie Bear is laughing up his red sleeve. Thanks for all you do. Looking forward to some more history deep dives. Shields high, Carolyn. Um, well, Carolyn, as to the um, purpose of the Russian interference, I, I cannot uh, disagree with you. I think that you are on track with the overall aim. And I think that in that way, interference and undermining of confidence and really also just the exacerbation of the nastiest of political divides. Uh, all of that, all of that together is what well, is the strategic aim 
of was the strategic aim of the Russian disinformation disinformatia. Is that right? Or is, is it disinformatia or disinformatia? I think it's disinformatia. I don't know. I don't speak any Russian. It's fun to pretend, though. And that's that was what they were hoping for, which means that the Democrats playing ball with all this stuff really and, and magnifying it and making it worse. And that really helps out what the Russians were trying to accomplish all along. So I, I think that we need to keep uh, keep that in mind. Um, the Russians, they always accuse people on the other side of playing into someone's hands. You know, oh, Trump is playing into Putin's hands. Trump is playing into Putin's hands. Um, to that, I would just say, well, if you look at who was really playing into Russian hands, uh, the way that the Democrats reacted to all of this is exactly what the Russians would have wanted all along. So there you have it. Uh, Trump is playing. I don't know why I say it that way. Trump is playing into Putin's hands because they always freak out about it, man. You know, it's so funny, isn't it? Democrats have so much, the left has so much control over the culture, but the people that they put forward in the news and information business are generally charmless nerds, you know, very, take themselves very seriously, not very impressive. They're like the, they weren't, they weren't suave enough and, and appealing enough to be actors. So they figured they'd work at like CBS Evening News or something. That's, that's the way it works. All righty, let's see what we have here. Oh, let's see what we have here in the inbox, shall we? Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go, lad. Max writes, hey, Buck, sorry about the miscue. I can help correct your celiac. I enjoy the show very much. On Amazon Prime, I enjoyed Bosch, a thinking man show. Uh, and if you want to contact me, here it is. Peace and shields high. I can help correct your celiac? Well, Max, that would that would be quite a magic trick, my friend. So maybe I'll have to email you. But if you if you're gonna ask me for my bank account information because you know a Nigerian prince who has the secret to a celiac disease cure, I don't think I'm gonna give it to you. I'm just kidding, buddy. I appreciate the offer and uh, I'll I'll shoot you an email, see what you got in mind. Um, as to the rest of the show, I think that's gonna be it for today, team. Thank you so much for writing in, for listening, for hanging out. I'll be with you tomorrow. I'll be with you every day. Same time, same place. Shields high.